You were a girl, thin and young, with veins that showed blue through your pale, pale skin, and your hair was reddish gold, and really you were still a kid when we saw you last. You were a girl, and you were only 15, and you looked younger. Long legs, grey eyes. You were a girl, a sister and a daughter, and we knew you. At least we thought we did. There was a house in the city. Town, we called it, but it was a city and still is the city of Melbourne. There was a house with two storeys and a tall shaggy tree in front and wisteria looping behind. A house on a hill. There was a house on a hill in the city and it was full of us. We were a family, a mother, a father, two daughters. There was a house on a hill in the city and it was full of us, our family, but then it began to empty. We fell out. We made a mess. We draped ourselves in blame and disappointment and lurched around, bumping into each other. Some of us wailed and shouted. Some of us barely made a sound. None of us was listening or paying attention. And in the middle of it all, you, very quietly, were gone. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Angus Dalton here with you. You just heard Peggy Frew reading from her new novel, Islands. It's a staggeringly beautiful portrait of a family falling apart set around a remote beach house just outside of Melbourne. Peggy is the author of the 2011 debut novel House of Sticks and 2015's Hope Farm, which was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Literary Award and the Stella Prize. She's also a vocalist and bass guitarist in the ARIA award-winning band Art of Fighting. Peggy is based in Melbourne, but we're hanging out now in the Allen & Unwin office in Sydney. Hi, Peggy. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Angus. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Um, So before we get into the book stuff, your band just released new music after 12 years. Yes. How does that feel? What's going on there? <laughs> oh, it feels good. It's, so we released a single called Genie, and the album itself will be out in, I'm not even sure, I think late June or maybe even July, actually. Yeah, the landscape has changed a lot since we last did music, so now it's all about the singles and you hold off for as long as you can for the album because apparently people just get bored once the album's out. So how would you describe the art of fighting for people who haven't listened? Sad music, if you like sad music. Um, it's Yeah, it's funny because we always our songs are always very much about heartbreak, but I think now that we're a bit older and, and wiser and uh, perhaps a little bit more cynical, we can kind of laugh at ourselves a bit. So there's a little bit of an element of humour in this new album. Oh, okay, great. But it's still, yeah, the focus is still on... on beautiful emotive songs fantastic um so when you started the art of fighting you were 19 is that right I I reckon I was even younger um I was pretty much I think it was I finished high school when I was 17 and I think we started at the year after that so maybe 18 yeah and around this time you were working on a kind of practice novel what motivated you to try writing a novel when you were that young 
I, I think I actually didn't start the novel then. It it I it would be hard to put my finger on when I did start it though because I didn't realise it was a novel. So mm. it was just a piece of writing, and it and I would just sort of go back to it every now and then on this really old bad laptop that my dad gave me um that had one of those weird little it was a the mouse was this weird little disgusting green rubber thing that looked like the eraser on the end of a pencil that was in the middle of the keyboard I don't know if you ever saw that yeah yeah. it was very old school and that that had kind of just worn away and it was really disgusting like from so many fingers touching it all the people at my dad's office before it got handed down to me anyway so I'd go back to that um piece of writing that just sort of grew and grew and I really didn't realise it was a, a manuscript until it was getting close to full length and um, I never thought I'd do anything with it. But, you know, the funny thing is it ended up being the beginning of what of this book, Islands. Yeah, know. yeah. We'll come back to that because that's so interesting. But first um, I want to go back to you. the first book that you actually published, House of Sticks, which is about a musician, Bonnie, who gives up her career in music to become a stay-at-home mum. You said in an interview at that time that family is a key matter for a lot of writers, but it's the mother and baby thing that mean people put it in that pigeonhole. I'm a bit worried it's not going to be taken seriously because it's only about motherhood. Um, That's such an interesting insecurity, I guess. Where do you think that came from? Oh, I just think it comes from the world, you know, and the fact that when you look at what's really valued in terms of art and culture... It's, it, it really still is, sadly, the exploits of men. And, and motherhood, you know, by definition is an exploit of women. But, you know, I really actually think that it's exciting to think that things have changed. A really obvious kind of barometer, I guess, is Hollywood, you know, which is the sort of most obvious marker of popular culture and the stories that are being told in Western culture anyway. And if you look at that, you do see that women are... The stories of women, I don't know if the stories of mothers is still something that we're looking at and valuing as much as, say, stories about war or something that's a much more conventionally male terrain. But if you just look at books and and books, particularly non-fiction books, about the experience of motherhood, I mean, I think they've probably always been there, but they, they certainly seem to have been doing really well recently. So perhaps things have changed a bit. But in terms of it being my insecurity, I mean, I'm just insecure. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it was my first book and I'd written a book that was about, that was very internal, that was about somebody's experience of something and it wasn't something kind of huge and bombastic like, you know, a, a major political event or something. It was a very small experience, you know, and an everyday experience, which is the life change of having children. So was that concern that the book wasn't going to be taken seriously warranted? Well, I I do remember a horrible moment that made me really angry when somebody that I knew, oh, actually it was my my partner had caught up with an old friend from many years before and um, and was telling this friend about me and what, what I did and, and mentioned that I was an author and, and the friend sort of said, oh, yeah, I've heard of that book. Looks like a chick's book, though. So, you know, there are always going to be buff heads that say things like that. And yeah. I guess you just have to not listen to, to them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the next book was Hope Farm, the story of a mother and daughter who moved to a hippie commune in 1985. 
You wrote part of that book on a residency fellowship from Varuna. Um, you hear quite a few writers talking about Varuna, but for people who haven't heard of that program, what does that fellowship entail? Uh, it is the most wonderful place and I, I urge any um, any writers aspiring or established to apply for, for residencies there or for fellowships. So it... Um, Veruna is uh, set up as a legacy for uh, Eleanor Dark, who was an author um, and lived in the town of Katoomba in the Blue Mountains. And she and her husband built this amazing house and raised their children there. And she had a writing studio in the garden, a a special um, bespoke studio. So her writing was valued in the family. Um, And I heard a funny story about how I think she told her children that they were only to knock on the door of her studio. If she was in there, they were only to knock on the door if it was an emergency. And on the first day, one of her sons knocked on the door and said, it's an emergency, I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So And then um, she's long since gone now and her son um, wasn't using the house and didn't feel that he needed it and so he decided to to set it up. So it's a... It's a writer's house there. I think it's up to five writers are there at any one time. You get your own room and your own writing space and then you get all your meals. It's fully catered. Um, It's such a productive place so people kind of hole up all day and write or, you know, go out for walks and things because it's the Blue Mountains and it's right around the corner from the, the Three Sisters and that incredible view. And then every night you meet and talk about writing and what you're doing and with, with other writers, it's just wonderful and I I always do, am watching the clock to see when I can apply again because I've been there a few times. Yeah, that sounds like absolute paradise for an author. It really oh is. Oh, my gosh. Mm. Yeah. Um, so with Hope Farm, it's such a distinctive setting, you know, with the hippie commune, um, but you said that book didn't start with a clear idea of plot or characters but rather a feeling that you wanted to capture. Is that how most of your stories start? Yes, is the short answer to that it, it's it's always a it's a feeling and often the sense of the characters and the place so it's all kind of mood related so what were some of those initial feelings that came to you for islands so i did think i would return to that practice novel so i finished hope farm and i thought okay i'm still really interested in this book that's set on the island and I'm interested in a book that's about childhood and about that I think I wanted to start with a protagonist who was a bit younger than Silver who was the protagonist in Hope Farm so Silver was already a little bit cynical and she was 13 and she she had a she still had a very skewed perspective of the adult world but she had a better idea of the adult world so I wanted to look more at that really liminal time of sort of well really it goes from I think about eight years old to about 12 where you're not a teenager yet but you're not you've sort of got one foot in childhood and you're kind of stepping towards adolescence and I I actually I mean I haven't read a lot of psychological theory but I suspect that that is really considered to be a formative they call it a formative time for a reason you know it really I I think that that time in our lives can really have an effect on the on the way that we see the world and the way, the way that we relate to other people for the rest of our lives. And so I wanted to start with a protagonist who was that age and um, just had this idea of the island because this island in particular, 
it's in a bay, so it's got very different landscapes depending on which part of the coastline of the island you're on. So there's the, the bay side of the island where it's very sheltered and these little beaches with shallow water and I, to me that felt like the childhood side of the island where uh, June and Anna, who are the children in, in the book, um, start out. Um, but then there's the other side, which is the ocean side, where it's big and wild and, and harsh and rough. And that's kind of, re- yeah, I really went to town with all it, the, the symbolism. I don't know whether it sort of came through in the book, but I remember at the beginning of the writing process just thinking, oh, I'm just going to let myself get really kind of symbolic here. And there's going to be the childhood side of the island and the, the adulthood side. And the adult side is where you, there are things that you can no longer avoid thinking about. And the childhood side is sort of the safe side, but there is this darkness which to me sort of was resided in the imagery of the tea tree and the scrub, the, the kind of half light of the place where the children walk through from their grandmother's house through down to the bright beach. There's this sort of um, sepia-toned world where it's very shadowy and things aren't clear and they can feel a bit scared in there. And to me that represented the what was going on in the lives of their parents, which was really quite disturbing and dark and something that they were only just beginning to wake up to or particularly the main character June who's the older the older sister so that was the starting point and the place that you've set in the book is where you used to go as well like the place that June goes with her family it's a real place right yeah yeah so it's Phillip Island and it's I've been going there since I mean there's a photo of my parents in um the garden at the house that my grandparents owned and, I mean, my mother, it might not have been me, but she is pregnant with a baby. <laughs> so I, I've been going there since before I was born and I still am still going there now. And just like June, the character in the book, I, it's because my my own family of origin no longer owns any property there on the island. But um, when I met my partner, he, by complete coincidence, had just bought a little block there and was in the process of, building the shack that we now take our kids to and they're having the the same sort of childhood experience that I had so I think I mean I didn't it wasn't like I consciously thought okay this is interesting here's a location that I have actually been to every single year of my life and I've I've known it in all of these on all of these different levels you know I've known it as a baby I've known it as a child I've known it as a teenager and now I know it as a an adult and a mother I didn't think that but as I was writing it and I remember I was talking about it with Mick my partner and he said you know it's it's really good that you're using this experience because it's actually not it's probably not that common for someone to sort of have this place that they return to so regularly and to have that ongoing relationship and to be able to observe the way that that relationship with the place changes um, over the years and we kind of would we also had these conversations about beach houses the way that those places don't change you know if there is a family beach house and you go there as a kid you go there 20 years later and it's the same couch the same kitchen the same saucepans the same pictures on the walls it's a time capsule and 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 how how much that throws into focus what's changed about you because you're the difference. Every time you turn up there, you're different because mm. you've grown up and you've had whatever, you know, you've had your heart broken or you've had a baby or, you know, all these things are changing. So 
I found that found that really interesting. Do you have any specific memories from going there when you were young? Say when you know how old's June when we first meet her? I think she? she's twelve actually. Twelve, yeah, so or eleven maybe. Yeah. When you're around that age, do you have any specific memories of visiting that island? I do remember having that a really similar revelation to June, where I um, so so just like June, I had it was my grandmother who owned a house there, and we would go there every. Every summer we'd go there in the winter as well and swim without wetsuits. We were just – kids are amazing because it is really cold. And we, I remember saying it's cold and my grandmother saying, yeah, just over there there's Tasmania and then just past that there's Antarctica. So <laughs> it is cold. Um, but I remember lying in bed and hearing um, the adults talking in the – kitchen kind of living area part of the house it wasn't like they were arguing or there was any particular charge to the conversation but I do remember having that sort of revelation that I think comes when you're around that age of yeah between nine and and eleven of realizing that they had lives of their own, which I know sounds just so obvious and stupid, but really when you are a very small child, you, well, I anyway, really just sort of saw them as these people in the background who did things for me. <laughs> Maybe I was a particularly na- narcissistic child, but just that revelation that they had and that they had their own relationships between themselves that I was not a part of and that they wanted things from each other that they might not get, you know, that the, the sort of chemistry of the relationships of adults. And I, I guess it – I don't even remember if it was my parents. It might have been, you know, my parents plus an aunt and uncle and my grandmother or something. It was just sort of the adult world, so that kind of awakening. I can remember that really clearly and feeling unsettled by that experience because I think I was um, quite a sensitive and – frightened child and it was that was a frightening experience for me because it felt like the end of the safety of of ignorance you know which is sort of the freedom of childhood yeah are you conscious of that now as a mum going the other way and how your kids might see you now or come to see you I am conscious of it but I also it's so funny how you end up you know every parent just says I'm never going to be like what my parents were like I won't raise my children in that way and then you end up doing just all the same things and <laughs> and saying all the same things and I kind of have reached that phase of 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 acknowledging it but then also saying I can't control this this is the way of the world so um I think a good example of it is just being an embarrassing parent you know I found my parents pretty embarrassing when I was little and they would kind of they would make that into a joke and I remember at the time just hating that as well but now I do the exact same thing you know, <laughs> to my children. I We recently went went to, to the island um, during the summer and I had packed my bathers and um, when I got there I realised that I'd packed the top of my bathers but I'd grabbed like this pair of undies that looked like the bottom of my bathers, <laughs> a pair of underpants that were like pretty much the same colour and same shape but obviously not made out of bathers material. And it was this beautiful weekend and I just thought, I don't care. I mean, there's not many people at the beach that we go to, but 
my children, of course, were mortified. <laughs> what are you doing? I mean, I ran straight into the water. Nobody would have noticed. But, um, yeah, that I, I really do recognise now that that absolutely excruciating uh, hyper-self-consciousness that, that kids have once they reach about 12 and now I'm well past that. I can see exactly what my parents would always say to me, which is nobody cares. Nobody's looking at you. You know, doesn't matter. Yeah, so I've become the embarrassing mother and I don't care. <laughs> and taking great delight yeah. in embarrassing the yeah. children. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Um, so Islands jumps between many different characters, sometimes the same character at very different points in their life. You described it as kaleidoscopic which I think is very apt but you also said that as you were writing the book and jumping around everywhere you suspected that you're being lazy why (laughs) that was early on um so I finished Hope Farm and I and I had this idea that I would revisit this old material that still did really feel like it had this energy to it that I wanted to to use and but I thought, oh, God, I can't write another novel. I just don't want to lug around another novel for three or four years. It's so big and heavy. <laughs> so I thought, I know, I might just write these. I'll just write little stories from different points of view and I'll just sort of fudge my way through writing something that's a full manuscript length but I don't have to commit. You know, I can just ch- keep changing things and feeling like I'm starting again over and over again. And so that did feel like there was a part of me that was thinking, am I being lazy and lazy or afraid, you know, to take on something big and to commit to a voice. And then I I had this fantastic correspondence throughout the writing of the book with um, a woman called Tegan Bennett Daylight, who's a, an author and critic and just tremendously accomplished um, person who also teaches creative writing and she read an early, She read a really early draft of the book and she read a draft right towards the end and she said, when this writing is at its best in this manuscript is when what you say and the way you're saying it become the same thing. And it took me a really long time to kind of actually get what she was talking about and in the meantime I, I read um, Lincoln in the Bardo and um, 10th of December by George Saunders. Because Lincoln in the Bardo is that extraordinary one that's sort of written in this very strange Greek chorus yes. sort of way, right? Yeah. It's with a cast of thousands. I mean, it's it's a really audacious book and he it's amazing he pulls it off. Uh, yeah, so it's it's almost like it's almost like reading a screenplay. It's just voice after voice voice after voice. Um, these and anyway, it was just a, it was a mind-blowing book. It really was amazing. Um, and, and then, uh, yeah, I eventually, some at some point, the penny dropped and I, I thought, okay, I think I know what she's talking about when she's talking about form and material or subject sort of merging, you know, what you say and how you're saying it becoming the same thing. I kind of thought, well, to begin with, it's the book is a portrait of a family and a family is not just one person and within a family there are all these different stories and there are different accounts of the same event. Everybody's experience is different. But then also because the book is about someone who goes missing, it's a book about loss and it's about what it feels like to lose someone 
and also what it feels like to be lost yourself for various reasons and all the different characters had their own reasons for feeling lost in their lives. Um, and I just realised that I think I wasn't being lazy, well maybe I was, but somewhere on a subconscious level I, I had this this kind of drive to write the book in that particular way because I was writing a book about people's whose lives about people, excuse me, whose lives had been fractured, who had experienced something that had just completely exploded their view of the world. I think that our identities are so closely contingent on knowing and understanding things and having a framework. And when you don't know something, that whole framework can just fall apart. And so I'm. this is about people who, the book is about people who, can't find something out that they really want to know. As in something in their personal history? Or, or well, I'm thinking specifically about when someone goes missing mm-hmm. and you know that something happened to that person, oh. but you don't know what it is and, and what it means for people to have to go on living their lives really in a, in a, a world, their own world, which has, which has just been shattered. So, and then I just thought, okay, so that I'm trying to evoke the experience of um, living a life that's fractured and that's why this book is coming out in this kind of splintered, fractured form where it, it, it keeps moving from voice to voice. It sort, of, it sort of almost does keep starting again. But hopefully the experience for the reader is that all of these pieces that they keep being supplied with as they read through each, each section... You know, and so there are voices from different people's perspectives, but then there are lists of describing paintings and there's extracts from a journal and there's one half of a conversation. You know, it's it's quite varied, the, the different forms, that, that when they have all these little pieces that they sort of, it's like taking, you know, pieces of evidence out of a sack or something and laying them all out on a table and then, then eventually the, the reader is, about, is able to piece together a story out of that. One thing that I kept thinking must be, really hard about writing a book like this in such an interesting, fractured way, uh, particularly with, with Junie, because she's such a central character and having her as a child, a teenager, and then as an adult, as, as a mum, is characterising her because obviously she's the same person, but you change so much between all those different ages. Um, I mean, you know, obviously just getting older, but then the, the things that happened to you and happened to her. Um, was that quite difficult to, I guess create a character that seemed consistent and the same person but then take into account the changes that you go through as you grow older as well? I think like so many writers I I draw on my own lived experience emotional experience you know obviously I mean I didn't have a sister who disappeared thank god I I would touch wood but I don't want to make a loud noise by being (laughs) on the table I'll touch it really gently um (laughs) I have I don't June's only got one sister. I've actually got three sisters in real life and they're all alive and well and accounted for as far as I know as of this morning. <laughs> um, but, you know, I definitely with June's experience, like I was talking about before about that lying in bed and hearing the adult voices at the at the beach house, I definitely drew on my own experience of late childhood, early adolescence and then also my experience of being in my 20s. And I think a lot of my interest as a as a writer and what I love to read as well myself actually comes out of um, a desire to somehow preserve feelings really sent both physical sensations and an internal 
you know, emotions that belong particularly to that early time of my life. So I am really interested in, I'm interested in writing that's about characters that are <laughs> obsessed with the past, basically. I'm always drawn to those characters. So, for instance, I really love the writing of Jean Reese, who wrote Wide Sagasso Sea, and um, I'm just reading another one of her books at the moment, Good Morning, Midnight. And her characters are all these kind of revenants that can't leave their past alone. They're haunted by their past and... And it, and it stops them from really being in the world that they're in in their um, present life. And I think that's that's such a universal experience. You know, we are we are made of our pasts. I think what I'm trying to say is that I think that this preoccupation with that that liminal space between childhood and adulthood means that I've done so much reading that's about that, and I've done a fair amount of writing and thinking about it myself. And I think it's in a desperate bid to try and keep it alive in my own mind. You know, I just I, I never want to forget what it was like to be a child because. Because, like I said before, I think those t- that time is so formative, and it's also, yeah, for some reason, it just has a magic to it that I just never want to lose. You know, you're often you are experiencing a lot of things for the first time, and you're not yet burdened by you know cynicism or jadedness in any way. And uh, so, perhaps that, perhaps that is why I felt. And all that work that I did on that early practice novel that I wrote in my 20s, I was sort of spending time going back to that, that, that childhood. You say that you write fiction in order to make sense of things that matter to you, but that are also not clear to you. So what were you trying to figure out when you wrote Islands? What were you trying to make sense of? <sighs> that is a really good question and a really hard one to answer. Is the short answer just read the book? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, it took me that long to figure it out and to express it. Um, yeah, it probably is. The short answer probably is. I think it is a book about a family and it's a book about a family where a couple of things go really badly wrong and things go wrong in every family, whether it's a spectacular, you know, devastating tragedy or, or, or just little things, but they do. They always do. There's no such thing as a perfect family. I wanted my characters to struggle toward somehow maintaining a connection with some experience of grace or the sublime, which is what it is to be in the world. And often that's experienced through physical stuff, you know. So um, I think almost every character in the book has some moment where they do something that's purely physical and it it's a moment of lightness for them and these are people who most of them are going through stuff that's pretty hard on them. There's a moment where Anna is, she's still there, she hasn't gone missing but she's very troubled and causing a lot of issues for the parents and everyone's very, very worried about her And but yet there's not really space no one's really asking June how she's feeling and if she's okay and she goes somebody lets her ride their horse at Phillip Island and she rides the horse on the beach and she has to go really early in the morning because you're not supposed to ride horses on the beach and it's a sublime experience it's beautiful and it's light and it's she 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 basically stops thinking and stewing and agonizing for just a few moments and I don't know, the, the the older I get, the more I feel like, I don't you know, when I'm on my deathbed, I really hope it's those beautiful 
experiences that are almost purely physical, just a moment of connection with another person or the way the sky looked on a particular morning or the smell of um, pine needles as you walk on, walking underneath a tree. I hope that that's what comes to me when I'm, you know, drawing my last breath rather than, yeah, it doesn't have to be something huge and profound. I just the more I think that the, those are the things that sustain us and that really are the, the most wonderful moments in the life and and especially if you share it with another person, that's that's what it's all about, I think. I wanted it to be a book about the big, enormous, sprawling mess that is the life of a family and the fact that there's room for everything in that life. There's room for there's room for resentment, there's room for frustration and, and anger, there's there's room for ambivalence. But there's also room for love and connection and that that's what real life is, you know, that, that nothing's just one way or the other. It, it, is, it is a big grab bag of stuff and um, I guess I wanted to try and evoke that, you know, so that the reader might feel that they'd spent time within this family and, and got a kind of kind of full, as full as you can manage in a piece of writing experience. That's what I hope for in life really. I just think we're so obsessed with the notion of everything being wonderful all the time and of joy and I actually think that real joy, it sits alongside all of these other experiences and and you've got to have the dark to, to yeah, this is sounding really kind of cliche, isn't it? <laughs> but you've got to have the dark to appreciate what, what the lightness is and... So for the story of this family, I wanted to try and have all that in there and to not kind of not kind of put any sort of judgment on it for my characters. Well, it is an absolutely gorgeous book and I absolutely loved hearing you talk about all of that. You've given people so much to think about and I hope people listening to this go and read the book because it is truly one of the most gorgeous novels I've read in a long time. So thank you so much for your time, Peggy. Oh, thank you. And thanks for saying that. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you.